Ready? Yep. Let's go. Healthy, healthy rainbow. Beautiful fish. <laughs> you dropped him, dude. Stud. <laughs> On the squall, baby. On the squall. I got it, too. Right there? I got it, I got it too. Oh. He barely puts in the net. Oh, my God. Uh, sick, sick, sick. <laughs> But first, a word for our partners. Heather's Choice, healthy, flavorful, dehydrated meals for the backcountry. Use our discount code theyoungguides15 to save at checkout. Lucky Bug Lures, get hooked and use our discount code theyoungguides15 to save at checkout. Northern Knits, handmade knitted wool hats out of Alaska. National Wild Turkey Federation, South Sound Strutters, your conservation organization for Washington State turkey populations and habitats. Alaska Rodco, Alaskan handmade rods. Shell Art Studio, original Alaskan focused art. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guys Podcast. I'm Keaton. And I'm Kyle. And on today's episode, we have our first return guest. We have Jared Larson from OnX. Uh, Jared is a marketing manager there. Um, we talked with Jared back on episode 11 so he's one of our very first guests on the podcast so we're super stoked to have him back um we're not gonna touch so much on jared's background today if you want to know more about jared and his background in the outdoor industry go back and listen to episode 11 um today we're going to be talking more uh, on a specific topic and that's going to be um planning uh an out-of-state hunt um traveling um jared's done a lot of that and um, yeah, I just figured we kind of ask him some questions that we had. Uh, I don't know about Keaton, but I've never really hunted out of state before. Um, we know a lot of people do that. And so we just kind of wanted to help people out and kind of point them in the right direction if they're looking to do that in 2023 or even looking ahead into 24 and 25. So with that, welcome back to the podcast, Jared. Appreciate it, Kyle and Keaton. I'm uh, I'm I'm honored to be the first return guest. And uh, yeah, it was it was a hot minute ago that we chatted last time. So I'm uh, I'm stoked you guys brought me back. Uh, it's been it's been fun watching you guys grow over you know what was that maybe a year and change ago when when I was on this podcast. So yep. appreciate you guys having me back on and excited to dive in on on planning some hunts. Sweet. It's funny because I just had uh, a memory pop up, uh, and it was about our podcast with you. I was like, wow, the timing's almost like identical to see 365 days apart. So almost, it's almost as if they're listening to like your Instagram DMS and stuff because yeah. they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so how you been? What's uh, what's been new? How's, how was your fall season? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was another really busy one for me. Um, I, I guess I don't quite know how many different States I hunted in 22, uh, but I would guess probably right near 10. Um, but, but this fall, this fall we did Wyoming, uh, we did Montana, did Illinois, Wisconsin, um, never did make it to Minnesota, made it to Idaho, uh, went to Texas, went to Alaska, um, hunted South Dakota for turkeys that, when we crossed off a bunch of them. Um, but it was, it was a really good fall. 
uh, shot my first speed goat. Uh, so that was, that was sweet. Um, actually shot an archery elk the very next day after shooting that speed goat. And then, uh, the highlight of the fall was really, um, I went on a sheep hunt with my sister, who's an Alaskan resident in 2021. And so basically the deal, cause I needed to be guided by, by her or my brother-in-law, uh, so they came on that journey with me and returned. She, she really wanted to kill a moose. So, um, so that was a trip that we spent a bunch of time planning and looking into, uh, we ended up getting her a bull on opening day. Uh, and then my brother-in-law, her husband shot just a little, a little bull winkle. We were in an, any bull unit. Uh, uh, he shot just a small bull the very next day. So we packed two moose out in under 24 hours, that was, that was something. Uh, and then we were actually in a spot that mountain goats were reachable. Um, and my brother-in-law certainly had the tags and, uh, we made an ascent up to goat country and, um, shot a billy. So it, it was a pretty action packed wow. Alaskan hunt. That's super. So, that's a lot of meat backing around. That's for sure. It, it was a ridiculous amount of cutting meat. Like I, when I got home from that trip, I questioned if I wanted to even go on my whitetail tour. Cause I was like, I don't want to cut any of this meat. And it's a good thing. Cause I got my ass kicked in the whitetail woods all late October and November. I was chasing pretty much one particular deer for uh, almost 12 days in a row. Um, had one encounter with them at full draw and just couldn't get an arrow off. And then, uh, then he was pretty elusive. Um, and then did a mule deer hunt. Uh, and then I've actually done a, a, a good bit of waterfowl and a little bit of upland hunting, um, in December and January here. So it's, it's been a, a good fall full of, full of different adventures. That's awesome. Was that uh waterfowl and upland? Is that something that you've been doing in the past or is that something you started doing more recently? It's honestly like I used to be pretty hardcore waterfowler. Uh, I grew up uh, right next to the Horicon Marsh, um, which is like the largest cattail marsh in North America, I do mm. believe. Um, and so there was some years we had excellent uh, waterfowl hunting there at home, like growing up and with buddies and stuff like that. Um, and then I guess really in the last couple of years, I've, I've kind of faded out of the waterfowl thing. Um I just been spending too much time chasing hooved critters. Uh, but that's the beauty of living in Montana and some of these Pacific flyway states, or, you know, if you're down South, but down South, you still have a shorter season. Our waterfall season is ridiculously long. It opens the end of September and it doesn't close until like late second week of January. Wow. Um, so crazy. yeah, after Thanksgiving, all the big game seasons are predominantly over and, you can chase upland until the end of December and waterfowl, you know, into January. Yeah, crazy. So thus I just bought a dog. So I'll I'll be busy next December and January. That's cool. That's awesome. <clears throat> so when you're going to like uh on these out of state trips, are you driving down to these out of state trips or do you do any flying or like what does that look like? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the first thing if you're trying to plan an out-of-state trip is you got to have a budget. Um, and that just that is what will determine like what kind of trip you can do, whether it's going to be a flight, whether it's going to be a drive. Um, and I mean, the biggest thing that you can do for yourself to go on more out-of-state hunts is find some buddies to go with you. 
Um, because then, then driving really becomes an obvious answer. You're splitting costs on gas. Uh, it's not that hard to dirt bag it in the back of a pickup truck. Obviously those really cold hunts, it, it becomes pretty dang hard, but there's so often in the places that you are going hunting, at least, you know, particularly out West, but even back, back East, you can find little mom and pop shop motels and hotels that are like well under a hundred dollars a night. And I mean, you could find an Airbnb and stay a little bit more lavishly, um, but you got to set a budget. And so uh, with that being said, I try to drive everywhere possible because flying is an absolute nightmare for a couple of reasons. Uh, just lost baggage um, is detrimental on a hunt, sp- mm-hmm. especially if it's your weapon. Um, just like the chance that your weapon gets jostled around enough that, you know, it is, it is off by the time you get there. It's just a lot more variables flying. Um, especially if you're planning somewhere that you're flying in, but then you still have to have transportation from that flight somewhere, Alaska per se. Like if you get stuck in Seattle overnight trying to get up to Anchorage and you already had, you know, a bush flight planned in or, you know, some type of transporter service planned that day, when you get set back a day by airlines, like it it really can throw a wrench into quite a few days of a trip. So bottom line, I try to drive everywhere. um, But, you know, anything over 24, 25 hours becomes pretty daunting. Um, And at that point, that's kind of when I look into what a flight would be, what those kind of logistics could be. Or, I mean, the best part about some of these opportunities is if you have buddies, you know, I got a high school buddy in Colorado. Uh, My parents are in Wisconsin. And so a lot of times, you know, you can kind of get yourself to a new area by meeting up with, you know, a buddy, a family member that's multiple states over, but maybe they can drive to the destination and pick you up on like a through airport stop. And so like, I'm doing that exact hunt uh, with my parents this April, we're going to go to North Carolina turkey hunting. um, And they're going to drive from Wisconsin. I'm in Montana, but I'm just going to fly into Indianapolis and get swooped up by my parents. So I had to pay for a flight. But, um, it, you know, I'm not reliant on renting a vehicle or uh, not having wheels. I mean, my dad's just going to bring one of his old extra shotguns. So um, anytime you can kind of like piggyback in that way, that's also a money saver and a time saver. Yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. So um, I, know, I know you just covered a bunch of stuff there, but one of the things that stuck out to me was the you know, you can, you can rough it, you can get a motel, you can get an Airbnb. Um, when it comes to Airbnbs, is there any way to find like a, like hunter friendly housing, right? Like places where you have room to clean a kill or maybe a freezer space where you can freeze some meat if you're going to be taking it very far. It's honestly shocked me the amount of times while well, and like, you know, Airbnb, my Airbnb is connected to my Facebook account. Uh, my Facebook profile photo is usually me with a critter or a fish. And mm-hmm. in fact, I'm sure those are the only two things it's ever been. Um, and it, it's been funny the amount of times when I'm staying at an Airbnb in the fall where, you know, they just assume, hey, are you here hunting? Uh, yeah. They're like, oh, I'll throw a, an extra drying rack up in the garage. Like if you kill something, please just like, you know, really tidy it up. Like I've had some really I've only had positive 
interactions with folks. And again, like I'm talking rural Illinois, rural Kansas, um, quite a few places in Montana. I mean, I have, I, I have washed a lot of bloody back. I shouldn't say a lot. I've walked, washed bloody backpacks and bloody game bags in more than two little motels in, you know, nowhere out West. Um, so yeah, you know, when you're, so many of those small communities know that they're reliant on some of that income that typically everywhere that I've been, I've been super welcomed on Airbnb, VRBO. Um, and that's the other thing, like, frankly, to plan a trip on budget, you just got to spend the time and be eager and willing to scrub the internet. You know, you got to check motels, you got to check VRBO, you got to check Airbnb, um, you know, I always use kayak for flights for whatever reason, like it seems to be better than Expedia. It seems to be better, um, than any of the other conglomerate ones. I can typically find a better deal if you really want to get after it. Like there's an app called Hopper, um, that like helps you jump on like cheap one-way tickets. Um, I, yeah, I, I've gotten fairly creative over the years in ways to save 50, 60 bucks here or there. <laughs> that's awesome so when you're like how far are you planning out in your mind like i gotta save up for this trip you know like are you thinking like a year out two years out what is, how do you plan for that and how do you kind of attack the savings on it yeah very dependent on the trip and now i'm i'm a single guy i you know i uh I live with a roommate, so like I'm not paying an astronomical amount of rent. I don't own a place, so I'm pretty like free will um, as far as my expendable cash when it comes to hunting. So this is going to be very different for everybody, obviously. Um, but it all all depends on the trip. If I'm planning an Alaska trip, I'm setting money aside. In fact, I I just really have basically an Alaska fund in my bank account where. You know, if if I'm like doing good and cash positive that month or if I'm budgeting out a little bit, I'll just start to shuffle some money. I literally just call it a trip fund. It's just a separate bank account, you know, right next to my checking and my savings. Um, and I'll just start shuffling money in there. And uh, it's pretty it's pretty easy to throw 20, 30 bucks at a time. And it feels kind of like a waste sometimes when you're doing that. But it's not because it's not easy to throw 200 bucks in there at a time. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I build build my cash for Alaska, because Alaska is going to cost you a couple grand. Doesn't really matter what you freaking do up there. Um, and uh, I, the cheapest species and the ones that I would most recommend going on an out of state hunt for is definitely turkeys number one first and foremost like it's typically decent weather camping in the spring is not bad yeah you might get snowed on you might have some rain um tags are way more affordable than any big game uh and, and typically you can get in the game you know like if you're trying to hunt a whitetail for the first time or an elk or um you know some big game species it can be downright like frustrating for years Whereas a turkey, like you can at least like hear a gobble and feel like you are in the game or like see one strutting in a field and like ask permission or, you know, make a play. Um, so that'd be my first and foremost recommendation. If you haven't traveled and hunted, start with turkeys. Um, then, I mean, 
Oh, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit here, boys. Where am I going with that? You're talking about um, like oh, how budgeting, budgeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So spring turkeys is definitely you can do it on the cheap for sure. You know, go one or two states over. It's not going to be terrible on the gas. And honestly, it can be an entirely different experience. Like turkey hunting in Wisconsin is so vastly different than turkey hunting in Nebraska. Um, you know, like. I think sometimes people get hung up that it's not worthy of an out of state trip to, you know, shoot the same thing just somewhere else. Or, and I, I certainly have never felt that way. Um, just because everything, when they live in a different habitat and it's just different ecosystems, different plants, there's different critters around. Uh, I, I just love exploring the places and uh, it's crazy that you can find similar critters all the way from, you know, state of washington down to florida there's turkeys in almost every state um but then if you're gonna go for something big game you know you're probably more than likely you're you're not gonna go east to hunt a whitetail if you're planning an out-of-state trip um unless you're already over there you know going from wisconsin to kansas or you know somewhere south to kansas um but planning a western hunt is getting harder and harder uh both financially and just opportunity wise um, and so there's a number of states that you can definitely collect points for quite a bit cheaper, um, for, you know, a quote unquote, less quality hunt typically and less quality, meaning probably a little bit more pressure, lower odds of shooting a real mature animal. Um, but that's my entire Western strategy right now is like doing the cheap ones and building points there. So, I'll, I'll kind of walk through what my current strategy is there and kind of the money I have allocated in those different places. So Wyoming is a state that um, you just simply can buy a point for deer and elk and antelope. Uh, I believe it opens like July 1 and it runs through October and you can just buy the preference point. And, you know, it's 50 bucks for... I want to say it's 50 bucks for a mule deer, 70 bucks for an elk, uh, something around 50 bucks for an antelope. Um, but you don't have to front, you know, you don't have to buy a hunting license. You don't have to front the cost of the tag. Like if you're applying in New Mexico, you got to pay, you know, the entire cost of an elk tag or a deer tag, um, which you'll get refunded if you don't draw, but you still have to buy the 150 whatever dollar hunting license and the habitat stamp, which isn't getting refunded. And it's like, if I don't draw, I'm not hunting New Mexico on that 150 bucks, you know? Um, so Wyoming is friendly in that way where you can just buy the points. Montana is friendly in that way where you can just buy the points. Um, and then Colorado is reasonable uh they just make you buy a small game license that's like 80 bucks or 89 bucks but then they only charge you nine dollars per species per point um so i think i buy like deer elk uh i think deer and elk is all i'm doing in colorado oh and desert bighorn sheep because they have a random lottery and nine dollars puts your name in the hat for you know one of one desert bighorn sheep tag <laughs> um and then so those Wyoming, Montana, Colorado are the the three that I've been doing for a couple of years. South Dakota is another one that I think flies under people's radar um, because it's maybe not quote unquote West. It doesn't have elk, but mule deer and antelope, you can just 
straight up by preference points. I don't exactly remember those date timelines. I think they might have just expired in the new year where you can just buy a preference point, but I could be wrong there. Um, but I'm buying mule deer points in, in South Dakota. And that was pretty dang cheap, like really dang cheap. I want to say it was like 60 bucks or something like that. And that was it. No, no, nothing. Um, so th those are kind of my Western states right now. I've put in for New Mexico just because like New Mexico and um, Idaho controlled units are a straight up lottery. There's no point system. Your odds are as good as my odds, as good as Bob's odds, who's been doing it for 40 years. Um, so there's some value in that to me, especially if you're more interested in trying to get a moose, sheep, or goat tag. Idaho is one of the most, uh, like you should be doing Idaho if that's what you want to hunt. Because if you put in for the deer and elk draw or deer and elk tag in Idaho, you cannot put in for moose, sheep, and goat, which I do believe that that is the only state that does it like that. So it just cuts down the amount of people going for the tags by a massive amount, as you can imagine, because that's for residents and non-residents. So uh, bottom line is, is as an Onyx Hunt Elite member, you get access to Hunt and Fool and Topra, which if you're interested in Western hunts, those two resources are going to be 1000 times more helpful than my rambles here. <laughs> um, but at a high level, like the states that I just mentioned, you can do it for pretty cheap. As soon as you start looking at, you know, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, you're going to start having to front the entire cost of a, a tag. Yeah, you'll get refunded a couple months later. But uh, as far as liquid cash flow goes, um, yeah, Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota, Colorado, North Dakota are pretty tough to beat. Yeah, gotcha. And how are you accessing, I know you, you mentioned those um, different uh, ways to get information on you know, the draws and stuff. Are you going to like that state's fishing game website? Is that how you're purchasing these or can you purchase these through places like Hunt and Fool? No. So, I mean, you're, you're definitely doing all of your true application and purchasing of points through the individual state websites. Um mm -hmm. But as far as doing all the research and understanding, you know, what unit might be of interest to you, like Hunt and Fool really does a good job of breaking down what to expect when you might get to unit 46 in Idaho. They break down like their recommended units um, for different, you know, I won't say like expertise levels, but they kind of like, you know, lay it out as far as this is extremely difficult terrain. This is terrain that has a lot of road access. You know, they lay out those details for you um, in their digital magazine, uh, which you get free as an elite member. You can just flip through um, and it covers, they do it in a really digestible fashion as far as they put out a magazine a month and they cover the upcoming month's state's deadline because every state has a different deadline. Like, you know, some of Idaho's deadlines have already gone and passed. Wyoming's, I, I think, are due at the end of January here. Montana's are in March. Um, so they have each month broken out by different states, and that's where I seek out a lot of my information. Um, and, you know, use that information as you will. Sometimes if I find a unit 
that isn't in Hunt and Fools magazine for Idaho mule deer, that doesn't mean I'm not interested in it. You know, that that could honestly mean it's more interesting because it's not getting the publicity. Um, and so that's Hunt and Fool and Top Rider kind of like my first resources to narrow down where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I do a lot of just Google searching. Uh, sometimes you can find like grad student research reports on on things in certain areas uh well you know where they where they researched moose calving success or and you know obviously looking at hunter success and harvest rates through the government agency sites which is sometimes really difficult to find top rut certainly has some of that for you um but that stuff i i find valuable because a lot of times you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys and a lot of your listeners here have gotten surveys from the, your state's fishing game. How many days did you hunt? Did you harvest this? Did you harvest that? Uh, and so all that data is is public record and eventually gets published. Uh, and so you just got to scour through some of those government agencies to find that. Some of them make it really easy. Some of them make it really not so easy. Um but that that's another thing that I'm doing a lot of uh, before these hunts. So like, I mean, I've in the last month, I've probably spent, I don't know, 12, 15 hours planning, planning my spring turkey trip, just like cruising government websites and starting piece together. Uh, you know, Gas Buddy is a great resource. I don't know if you've ever used that website, but if you're planning a road trip, like that is invaluable uh, because it gives you a pretty dang good estimate of what your gas is going to cost. Um, and so, yeah, it really just comes down to putting in the effort and and uh, punching the keyboard enough to figure it out, which is almost sad that that's what it comes to. Like, I, I wonder how my old man planned trips in the eighties without the internet. It's like, what the hell were you doing? Yeah. So when you're planning trips, have you ever planned a trip back to a place not because of the hunting, but because of like, just like the personality of the place that you go to. Ooh. Um, I mean, Wisconsin always has a a nostalgic draw to me just because I grew up there. I think Mm -hmm. pretty much everybody can relate to kind of, you know, where you, whether you grew up hunting or fishing in some particular location, there's something about that spot that just is uh it always has some amount of draw for you um but i really like to continue to go to to new places um there's not a whole lot of spots you know outside of my whitetail spots that are on private land but if i'm pawning public land i really enjoy to to bounce around and explore new country and new areas uh so you kind of stumped me on that one keaton i don't have a good answer for you yeah no i was just i was just curious because like uh you know if you travel to a place to go hunting but have you ever been to like a place where maybe the town wasn't like as accepting of an out-of-stater or anything like that you know like honestly no not uh not in my experience um so many rural communities, you know, that's like the lifeblood of, of you know, so many of those folks, uh, especially I would say, you know, the vast majority of my travels have have been in the Midwest. Um, and it's just so many of those farming communities, you know, it's, it's like that's it, it is not 
at all shocking when somebody is knocking on your door asking for hunting permission, you know? Yeah. No. And I like the, I've done like one out of state trip and the time that I was out of state, it was like the most friendliest, like welcoming place I've ever been. I was like, man, I, I wish like people were like this back home, you know? It's honestly kind of ridiculous. And, and you saying that brings this to mind for me. At, it's almost as if you get preferential treatment sometimes if you drove a really long way to go hunt a place. Like I've had people, you know, being from, from Western Montana, um, went down to like the very Southeast corner of Kansas and hunted turkeys, you know, it was 20, 20 some odd hours. Um, and they're like, man, you came all the way here to hunt turkeys ordinarily. Like, ah, I don't let too many people hunt, but yeah, if you came all that way, like go for it. Uh, <laughs> and so like, I've had that, like that, that similar same vein experience on, numerous occasions on out-of-state hunts where you know or or like you know you get to talking to a landowner sometimes talking to landowners is just so thoroughly entertaining and enjoyable um because the world is sometimes real small you know like their their grandkid went to iowa state and we start just talking about iowa state basketball that that came to mind because that literally got me permission on a snow goose field one time um and so like i I don't know it's just uh you got to put yourself out there um and i think like talking to landowners knocking on doors you know asking a question at the bar that has a fair amount of deer heads hanging on it you know some local that's sitting in there like the worst that can happen is you know they're like yeah man I i don't got no secrets to share with you and the best that can happen is you you know you somehow make a buddy and get offered permission there was a diner that I went to, to do like, uh, work every day, midday when I was hunting, uh, whitetails in Minnesota two years ago. And, uh, I'm like the third day in the diner, you know, I showed up in like camo and I just sit there from like 10 to two, get some work done, go back to the tree and, uh, same waitress for the third day, you know, we were chatting, whatever she, she offers me to go hunt her property that her husband hunts. She's like, man, you, you've been in here every day. Like we have 30 acres up North. Like there's a really good deer on it. My husband's been hunting them all fall. I talked to him last night. Like you're more than welcome to come up and hunt it for, you know, the two days you have left. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what do you mean? I'm more than welcome to come hunt it. And your husband hunts it. Like, I don't know. You just run into crazy, nice people. Yeah. That's so cool. That's such a great experience. And I think that also just adds value when you're planning trips again, you're like, Hey, I remember this time uh, that I went to this diner and this lady offered me hunting uh, rights to her property. And it's like, you want to go back to those places because those are like, you're getting also service back, you know, you're providing, you're spending money into their local economy, but they're also giving back in many ways. Yeah, I will go to the Lake City Cafe in Lake City, Minnesota, every single time I roll through that little town. (laughs) <laughs> you just blew up lake city cafe and now everyone's going there and like that, wait, that's all right going? that's all right we'll see if they can uh they can gain the same access granted i didn't i didn't kill that buck she was telling me about but did you end up getting one no i didn't i didn't i ate that tag damn how often does that happen when you're doing these out-of-state hunts all the time 
you yeah. gotta you gotta be ready and willing to eat some tags because if you're not it it uh it makes the drive home really long if you're truly sour about not harvesting a critter uh i certainly have spent some drives home feeling that way uh but i don't know at the end of the day it's uh it's very unrealistic to expect that kind of success especially when you're going somewhere that's more than likely completely unfamiliar to you I think if you can go out and this is again why it's crucial to have some, you know, good buddies or family or somebody to go do this with because there's a good chance a, there's a fair amount of your hunt that's going to be tight too. It's going to be a suck fest. Like you're going to be getting your ass whooped. You're going to be down. Um, <clears throat> and it's really those with persistence that are the ones that are out there killing critters. It's And that is a lot of times, uh, you know, having a positive hunting partner that every single morning when that alarm goes off, it's like, no, today's the day we're going to kill one. doesn't matter if you have gotten your teeth kicked in for the last six days. Like that's, that's how I pretty much wake up every single time I go hunting. Like I think that I'm going to kill whatever I'm after, like every single time. And like, it just, it keeps you positive. It keeps camp positive and it makes all those hunts, uh, you know, just a lot more enjoyable when it is type two and you are getting your teeth kicked in. And, and then when it does come together, because it takes all of one second for your entire hunt to change for the better, you're just like, wow, all that, all that suck was absolutely worth it. Yeah. yeah. Or when you look back, you know, several months later, yeah, packing out, you know, the, that moose within couple moves within 24 hours you look like that was tough work but you, you look in your freezer now it's like oh, totally worth it yeah and and i mean yeah every part of that was awesome like i enjoyed that misery like that misery after success i will have no time to hear complaints and i will have no sympathy for you if you're telling me about a gruesome pack out like that's earned that is earned misery yep that's the best kind so you talked about, you know, doing your research, applying for tags, kind of budgeting, looking for places to stay. Let's say draws come out and you get drawn, let's say you get your coveted mountain goat tag in Idaho, right? Yeah. What is your next plan or next step in your plan for how you're going to get out there and hunt? Yeah. So, uh, you know, depending on what the hunt is, you know, an Idaho mountain goat would probably be pretty unrealistic for many people that drew it to go on like a scouting mission. Mm -hmm. Um, but like one of my main strategies when I go on turkey hunts is I am scouting for future deer hunts while I'm turkey hunting. Uh, and same with like a lot of the fishing trips I go on out West, like I'll go fishing in the summer uh, you know, up some river that has some amount of interest to me for a future hunt. And so, I mean, for like an Idaho goat, I would absolutely be looking at like high mountain lakes in the summer that would, you know, draw me up to goat country, but I can bring a fishing rod. So it's not like five days of just hiking, looking for goats that may or may not be there four months from now when I want to hunt one but I'm still getting familiar with the road systems, uh, you know, like what the terrain is going to be like, how heavily used are some of, you know, just like the general hiking trails that are going to be obvious access to that country. 
Um, so I'm, I'm definitely trying to plan that if it's unrealistic, then you're relying totally on maps. Right. And so, I mean, when I'm going in on maps, I look for, uh, a number of different things, you know, depending on the species, the first thing I'm looking for is habitat diversity. Doesn't, I mean, a mountain goat is actually a pretty poor example for this probably. Um, but pretty much all species thrive on habitat diversity. You look at a moose and they hang out in those like swampy, aldery edges where there's, you know, definitely dark timber in close proximity, you know, maybe like a riverbank. It's a bunch of habitat types coming together. Turkeys, same thing. They're typically using like a creek drainage that has a, a reasonable amount of topography. Typically there's fields in close proximity. Um, you know, deciduous trees that are mixing with coniferous trees very oftentimes when you can find the most diverse types of habitat, that's where you're finding critters um, because pretty much every critter, uh, they thrive on edges and transition zones um, just because it's easy to get from bedding cover to food sources to water when you have all of those things in near proximity. And so it doesn't matter what I'm hunting. That's the first thing I'm looking for is like just diversity of habitat and the paramount thing being water, nothing out there, at least nothing in North America that can survive without water. Um, and so that's really where my, my head goes first is locating good water sources and habitat diversity from there. I'm really looking, uh, the Onyx Hunt app has a, a layer called the M M U V M, uh, roads and trails. And so that is uh, on, I believe that's national forest land across the country or no, cause it's on BLM too. Um, regardless, it's going to highlight purple, all of the road access that is available uh, in that particular area. And so that just gives you an idea of, you know, where the likely pressure is going to be. Um, and then those areas are things that I, I kind of tend to avoid. And another thing to look for is just, smaller parcels you know if there's a thousand acre parcel and there's a 60 acre parcel 19 guys out of 20 are going to go to that thousand acre parcel rather than that 60 acre parcel just because they're like oh man like that's that's you know pitter patter small small change uh and so again it just gets overlooked uh so those are the big things that i'm looking for on a map you know when i'm first diving into a hunt yeah. Cool. You know, I'm just playing around as you're talking about all these layers pulling up my on X. And <laughs> well, kind of and that's, yeah, that. the habitat diversity, I should have mentioned this one, but if you go into your map layers and uh, there's, I think it's trees cover and crops, you know, it's a, it's a whole folder of layers in there um, that has some really detailed and useful information you know, acorn producing oaks, you can turn on deciduous layers, you can turn on coniferous layers, you can get down specific to tree types. If you only want to locate hickories or, um, you know, elms, all that stuff is in there. Now, is this, it, it's not a data set that's trying to tell you exactly where a tree is, it's giving you a predominant area. Um, and so use it to you know, drop some waypoints from home and say, Hey, this area where, you know, these clear oaks come down this ridge, there's a Creek bottom here. There's a bunch of coniferous trees on the other side of this Creek. 
drop away point there. And if you can verify a boots on the ground um, and, and really just get a lay of the land, it's incredible how much that'll help you. Um, but yeah, there's so many great layers in that app to, uh, to really dissect um, ground that is potential to, to be hunted and have good, good critters. Yeah. So is that how you like most of your out of state scouting's going is via Onyx and Google maps. And I mean, cause it's gotta be hard. Like if you're not in a nearby state, you're not going to be able to take a weekend in the summer and go out and scout it. You know, if you're going to like, like you said, you go to Kansas sometimes or down in those uh, Southeast states. I mean, um, how, like, how do you go about that? <laughs> like, yeah. That's kind of my question there. Sorry. I lost my train of thought towards the end, but uh, I'm just curious on how you scout that out. Yeah. Um, so like the Kansas example, I turkey on a Kansas two springs ago. Yeah. I've been collecting a D- Kansas deer points. I have enough. I mean, it really only takes one to draw. I think I have two or three of them at this point. So I might've wasted some money there. Um, but like, I just am always, I always turn my tracker on in the hunt app when I'm out and about doesn't matter what I'm doing because that just immediately jogs my memory of like where I was kind of like what I did. You know, you can see when you turn that tracker on, if you walk around a bunch in a small area, like that's very obvious on the map and, you know, drop a waypoint of a rub or whatever. So like, that's what I do when I turkey hunt states, even if I have no real future intentions of deer hunting there, I still notate any deer sign and all deer sign that I find. Um, but yeah, realistically, like you're not going to be able to go scout on an out of state hunt that you're going on. And so, uh, I guess my biggest piece of advice and the thing that I've found, uh, found out the hard way is just plan to be mobile. So like it's, it's fine to book an Airbnb and, you know, book a motel when you're across the country. Um, like for instance, this North Carolina trip that I'm going on with my parents in April, I've never been in North Carolina in my life. I just like started looking at maps, looking at harvest data, um, looking at kind of just the terrain that I found interesting and wanted to hunt. Uh, and then I found, you know, some decent sized little towns because sometimes it's really hard to find Airbnbs or, uh, motels when you're when you're hunting way out there because driving an hour and a half from the airbnb or, or motel forget about that for me i'm i'm sleeping in the back of my truck at that point um but once you book that like you have to be willing to maybe drive two hours if everything that you thought in close proximity is really not it for you you know, you're not finding birds, you're not finding deer sign, whatever it may be for your species, like, don't beat your head against a wall and and try to make something out of nothing. You know, branch out a little bit, try something that is a little bit out of your comfort zone, burn a day in the truck and go truck scouting, even if you're like driving around private lands that you can't necessarily hunt, like, you might find out that you're seeing deer in every alfalfa field when you know the area you're hunting all you got is soybeans um and so you know don't be afraid to burn a day or even two days of a hunt uh by just really scouting it getting the lay of the land that's one thing like the guys from the hunting public and and how they um 
hunt like they're kind of the ones that seeded that into my mind um just because they are so dang mobile like they'll show up to an area if they're not finding hot sign and what they're looking for like they're bouncing over 40 minutes they're going over an hour like they are not they're they're rarely hunting the first day of their hunt they're like speed scouting a bunch of different properties and locating an a option a b option and a c option because there's a reasonable chance that there's going to be a truck at the A option before you get there. Um, so I guess to answer your question, Keaton, is like if you can't scout it ahead of time, just plan for your first day, first day and a half, maybe even two days, depending on how long your hunt is. Get familiar with a radius of an hour and a half around where you're at and speed scout a bunch of areas and make a plan now if you find hot sign or you hear a bird gobbling like don't be a fool and go to the next spot like go you know get on that bird or you know take a hunt if you're really confident about it um but don't spend too much time hunting without hunting verified sign that makes good sense tip, good tip. yeah this whole time you've been talking i've been like i've been thinking of the um, the hunting public because I, I watch hunting public all the time on youtube and it's like a lot of these things you're talking about like i've not only am i hearing your experience and i've seen you you know posting stuff online and seeing your success from this but i'm also able to connect that with some of the stuff i see visually on their youtube channel so that's that's really cool to hear those dudes like you can learn so much from those dudes um and i mean they they willingly share so many of their um you know experiences and failures um yeah no they're they're a wealth of knowledge for sure so let's say now you've done some scouting um whether that be on the ground or maybe you did some e-scouting um how are you planning to get your gear there and what gear are you packing yeah all all very hunt dependent of course um but Again, that's another reason I, I definitely try not to fly uh, is just because gear becomes way more of a hassle, particularly weapons. Although that said, like I've never really had a problem traveling with weapons. I've maybe flown with a rifle uh, four times and a bow about equal, and I've never had a, a real bad experience. I've definitely had to adjust uh, a rifle once or twice. Uh, in fact, yeah, twice out of the four times I've flown a rifle, I definitely had to make some small adjustments um but outside of that uh what are some items that i absolutely need on every hunt a good pack a good pack is absolutely invaluable especially if you're going west it's not it's not as dire um you know if you're hunting whitetails or something like that but if you're going west if there's one spot to spend money i'd spend money on a good pack uh because a good pack with um, an internal or well, an external frame that's going to carry meat and carry meat well, but also just have a very well designed pocket configuration. I have an Exo Mountain Gear, I love that pack. Um, Kufaru makes good packs, Stone Glacier makes good packs. Uh, but those are all you know, you're going to be spending some coin to get a good pack. Uh, yeah. absolutely would recommend a good pack. Something that I just recently invested in because I was so tired of having shit ones is a good headlamp. I went out, uh, I actually put it on my Christmas list. Uh, shout out mom and dad. Uh, 
27 28 yeah no 20 yeah i don't even know how old i am but i still get i still get a christmas gift from mom and dad um so anyhow got a uh a peaks peax headlamp that thing is pretty wicked awesome i've not used it a ton but i used it a couple times on uh on duck hunts and a ton of different settings they're kind of hard to configure the settings but super bright and uh 89 hour battery life um and it doesn't require like carrying double a's or triple a well mostly triple a's i just have been through so many 30 dollar black diamond headlamps that barely work when you get out there or the locking you know the locking mechanism didn't work and they're dead and you're already using your spare batteries on night one um so a good headlamp every hunt that's coming with me um the right footwear i've been burned by this before where you know you you bring you you don't bring your extra pair of boots because you're trying to save weight or maybe you uh you bring knee boots instead of waders even though you know it's going to be pretty wet uh there's nothing worse than having uncomfortable feet so i would I overpack on footwear on every trip I go on. Now I'm not saying that I pack in an extra pair of boots elk hunt and I don't, but I bring Crocs that way. I'm not having to wear my boots at night and around camp and my feet can air out. Uh, like that moose hunt I went on half of my bag was boots. The other half was rain gear. I brought extra tufts. I brought my leather hiking boots. I brought my wading boots. I had my waders. And I mean, you guys that right there takes up, you know, a fair chunk of a 50 pound duffel. Um, and so I really value, uh, comfortable footwear. Um, and then honestly, rain gear, I can see it going both ways. I know a lot of people that are wickedly successful at hunting and, you know, if it's raining sideways, they'll just wait it out and go out after the rain. Um, but, in my experience, persistence pays off more than uh, more than my skills, I would say. Uh, and good rain gear, if you're going to want to hunt in the rain, ooh, like uh, it is insane the difference between marginal rain gear and good rain gear. <laughs> yeah, those yeah. those would be like my big my big things as far as gear goes. Yeah. Have you ever gone and on like a trip to like a warmer area and you pack like for kind of warmer weather and then out of the blue, they're like, oh, yeah, it's our 100 year like rainstorm that rolls through and you're out there just getting dumped on. Uh, So that Alaska trip, we got 16 inches of rain in the, the seven days we were out there. So that was that was wet. Yeah. Um. And I, I've actually had it the opposite of a couple times. Uh, in fact, I was in Arkansas last year for a whitetail hunt in Texas this year where like forecasts, uh, you know, it was supposed to be like high 20s, low 30s with highs in the, you know, 50s, low 60s. And uh, both times you got down there and it was like lows in the 50s and highs in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> That I'd rather have it the other way. I would rather freeze my feet off than be sweaty every time I try to move. Uh, yeah, those I did not enjoy uh, the amount of sweat on those two trips. <laughs> oh. 
I've I think done. Arkansas the year I was there in December, I think it was like literally 89 degrees and it broke like, you know, the hundred, literally, like you said, like the hundred year record high temperatures for the month of December or something. when we were trying to bow hunt down there. It was brutal. Yeah. I've had a couple of days in like October where I like, I got, you know, when I'm younger, I got neoprene waders. And Oof. so we go out and we're, it's like nice and cold in the morning. And then, that sun yeah. hits that horizon and you're just like everything's just soaked and you're not even doing anything except standing in a duck line, but it's so hot and there's nothing you can do until you get back. Neoprene waders, man. Ah, oh, man. I, I do not wear neoprene waders really ever anymore. I have a pair that if it was like real frigid and I really wanted to go duck hunting, maybe. Yeah. Boy, neoprene waders are tough. I got I got them for those like December January duck hunts, but uh, other than that, I've like started wearing just like my gray waders or whatever. I'm like I'll be fine. Oh, hundred. Well, I assume you have like Sims or you know like Orvit. Like I assume you have a decent pair of waders given your gig. Yeah, we got. Well, I got the, the Orvis Pro waders, and yeah. even those can get hot sometimes. You know. But that's what I'm saying. After wearing a good pair of waders, trying to wear a neoprene pair of waders, it's like, how do people get by wearing these? Yeah. yeah. So another big thing when it comes to planning these trips, right? So, you know, on that trip, I know that um, it was your your sister and your brother-in-law that shot the moose, but it sounds like, you know, you were able to take some meat home, right? Oh, yeah. What, what is that? process of getting that meat back and how do you plan for that yeah no you really i mean for a moose hunt you got to plan for it significantly more than you know a deer hunt or uh an elk hunt even um but i mean you have to budget for it um because especially if you're flying it's going to cost you quite a bit of money to get your meat home another reason to drive everywhere possible uh because on top of your meat getting antlers home is not always uh exactly easy either um so i always would recommend leaving a day on a if you are flying you pretty much need to have an entire day plus maybe a little bit of change to care for your meat depending on you know how much of a meat haul it could be if it could only be two meal deer like you and a buddy can cut up two mule deer pretty much wholly done through and get it frozen in the course of 24 hours. If it's going to be two moose, you ain't doing that in 24 hours. Um, And so like you do need to budget time into your hunt, uh, you know, preparing for success because the worst thing you can do is you don't, you are successful and you end up, you know, not being able to fly your meat home. You have to, and I mean, I've never been in this situation, but I mean, oftentimes you can find ways to give away meat to locals Um, in some places with some species easier than others. Antelope, you're probably not going to get to give away your antelope, but I strongly disagree. I think antelope's delicious. A lot of people don't. Um, But like an elk, you might be able to, yeah, find somebody to to donate that meat to. Um, But you just Rubbermaid bins, like the, you know, the classic black ones, with the yellow or red lids. Um, 
I've toted a lot of meat around in those, you know, if you get a bunch of, if you get 50 pounds of frozen meat in that thing, that meat is staying frozen for a long time, uh, even at, you know, reasonable temperatures. And obviously if it's cargo space in the air, like it, it's colder than hell in that cargo space. Uh, so like I've done a lot of Rubbermaid bins, particularly, you know, you got to be able to, to freeze dry or get clean bags. You can't just throw meat in a Rubbermaid bin and let it leak everywhere. Um, but that's one thing I do. Another thing I do is, uh, you know, whether it's a Yeti or an Arctic or any of these other soft-sided coolers, you know, they have the, I don't know, they're maybe like five gallon, but they're soft-sided and you kind of push them and they open. I can get about 40 pounds of meat in those things consistently for like, doesn't matter whether I was trying to fly moose home or a deer from Texas and like 40 pounds of meat is, is you can pretty much get a, you can't get a big white tail or a big mule deer down into a cooler like that when it's all deboned and cut up, but you can get a lot of it in there and then, you know, fill your checked bag with a few pounds of meat here and there. I've done that so many times. Um, you know, I've had them open my bag from TSA and yeah, they find a few pounds of frozen burger and they don't, they don't care. Um, so yeah, you definitely have to plan for it. Uh, but I would say typically you can find, um, you know, whether it's a, a meat processing place or somewhere in local proximity of where you're hunting that they can help you get it frozen. They can, you know, package it for you. Those are just calls that you've got to make ahead of time. You know, if you're going to small town, Kansas, and you're going on a deer hunt out there, call a processor within an hour and say, Hey, like if I shot a deer on a Tuesday, what kind of timeline would I be looking at? And that also helps you set a precedent. If he's like, ah, you know, I'd get it back in a month. Well, that ain't going to be an option for you. Then you're going to have to process your process it yourself, debone it. Maybe you buy a you know a sixty dollar food saver vacuum sealer to bring with you, um, because at the end of the day, like that's probably going to be cheaper than paying the local processor to vacuum seal your meat. He's probably going to charge you you know dollar fifty a pound or something like that. So. Um, yeah, you, you just got to plan ahead and, uh, be smart about it and be realistic about it. Yeah. That's, I've seen some, I don't know if it's horror stories, but I've seen stuff, you know, like on Facebook groups where it's like, Hey, I just shot this moose and I'm flying back to lower 48 tomorrow. What can I do with it? Or it's like you, I've seen even like in the lower 48, you know, I shot this elk. Does anybody have a good recommendation for a butcher? And it's like, well, should have planned that like two months ago, right? Like called around, found your local butcher if you're going to do it that way or or had that plan because once that animal's on the ground, that clock is ticking on how, how long you can get that meat and keep it in a, keep it uh, going bad, keep it good. Yeah, so. no, that is 100%. And I mean, that's that's the paramount, uh, that's the goal with hunting is is bringing that meat home. Moose, moose is one that, you know, there's probably not a lot of people that are, are consistently doing that, but it is insane how much meat comes off those things. Like to fly, if my, if my siblings didn't live in Alaska and we didn't ferry that meat back like to their car, mm -hmm. it would have been an insane expense to fly 
two moose worth of meat from Alaska back home to Montana. I mean, like damn near a thousand dollars. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it is insane. And, you know, I, I was on a hunt this year where uh, I shot a moose and the guy I was with shot a moose and he took his to a butcher and we did ours at home. And over, we took us 18 hours and 11 people to, to completely cut and package my moose and put it in the freezer. Like it is insane how much it takes. Yeah, I am not shocked at all. Uh, I mean, when we shot those two moose and that mountain goat, we spent an entire day out there deboning all of it and just like cutting out, you know, the big obvious roast chunks, steak chunks, had a burger bag. I think we, yeah, the four of us cut meat for like 14 straight hours or something like that just to get it deboned. Mm-hmm. And then we spent the entirety of one day and half of the next day with four of us just to get it like reasonably trimmed, packaged and into a freezer. So like my dad and I could fly some of it home. And then obviously my sister and brother-in-law still dealt with meat for like, I don't know how many days after that. It wasn't my problem anymore. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I was so tired of cutting meat after that. I was like, if you want to go moose hunting, you just better be prepared to play with meat for a really long time. So when you guys packed the moose out, did you guys, were you packing it out on your backs or did you have, and so were you going to like a car or were you doing, were you rafting down a river or anything or like, no, we're, we're stationary camped, um, you know, just not too far off the strip. There's a little bit of topography to try to do some glassing. Ultimately we ended up just, you know, it was almost like turkey hunting, really just walking around, finding meadows, calling, moving, calling, moving. Um, and I mean, you got to set a radius moose hunting and our radius, our radius was probably foolish. We said nothing more than two miles from camp uh, as far as like pulling a trigger on a moose. Thank yeah. God we didn't come anywhere close to that two mile mark. I think my sister's was like just, I think it was just over three quarters of a mile. And my brother-in-law's was that's like freaking 900 yards as the crow flies to like roughly a half mile uh, from camp. And like, those were pretty terrible enough just mixed with like the swampy, uneven, boggy ground, multiple (laughs) creek crossings, busting through like alder willow brush. Um, And and ultimately in the grand scheme of moose pack outs, I, I do believe we had two cherry moose pack outs um but like my whole body felt like a smushed spring you know yeah. like from carrying moose for a, an entire day straight more or less it just, i was just like man I, I ain't carrying anything you're done at the end of it yeah i bet you slept good huh after packing all the... i mean as good as one sleeps on a thermarest yeah covered <laughs> in moose blood in grizzly country yeah yeah no no jokes there so here's a question for you so i'm planning a trip is it more beneficial to me to plan to go with a lodge or try to get onto some private land if i'm going for let's say a five-day hunt out of state or should i like find that public land and get after it um 
that comes back to your budget. If you have the budget and you're willing to spend the kind of money that it takes to go on an outfitted hunt or go to a lodge, like those experiences are hands down going to be, uh, you know, more catered to you. You're going to probably see more critters. You're not going to have to work as hard. Uh, you're not going to have to spend as much money on, you know, higher quality gear because it's not going to be, uh, nearly as difficult of a hunt more than likely. Um, so if you have the money, like outfitted hunts are, are awesome. Uh, I find them to be less rewarding, you know, something that I shoot on an outfitted hunt, uh, you know, call it the same caliber deer on an outfitted hunt as a DIY hunt. Like that outfitted deer means far less to me than the deer I shot DIY. You know, I had to scout for that deer. I had to, you know, put myself in the right position, um, not taking anything away from those outfitted hunts that people are shooting awesome critters on. Uh, it's just me personally. I would rather, you know, I guess put, put in the work and, and earn something, even if it's a lesser quality animal. Um, yeah. So my recommendation is like, go explore some public ground or like go knock on some doors. Uh, once one tactic that I use a fair amount uh, and it is not successful. Well, it, it has been successful, but it is a numbers game. It is not overly successful, but write some letters. Like if you know you want to go to, you know, Alabama on a whitetail hunt, you know, next year, start penning some letters. You know, you can't send them too far in advance of your hunt, but, you know, maybe a couple months in advance of your hunt. Yeah. Take three hours and find find 20 properties on Onyx as you're cruising around and that, you know, have that habitat diversity, have the kind of topography or the terrain type that you like to hunt that you're, you know, confident in um, the right parcel size, right? Like sending and asking permission on 600 acres is often, often going to be less successful than sending and asking for permission on 50 acres, um, you know, like likely if somebody has 600 acres of good looking habitat for any type of critter probably gets hunted. If somebody has 50 acres that their house is on the front of, and you know, there's like a little agriculture field and they got a block of timber, like there's a good chance somebody hunts that, but there is a chance that somebody doesn't. Um, and like, I used to get way more tactical when I had more time on my hands, but I would go as far as you find, you know, you find the landowner's name on Onyx. I would, I would put them in the white pages. I absolutely, I paid $4 and 99 cents a month to be a member of white pages for a long time. And I would search their name in white pages and I would find their age. If they were above 65 years old, 100% chance I was sending them a letter, you know, because like oftentimes those people are out of the hunting game. And unless they have kids or grandkids hunting, those folks love to talk to people. They're like, they just, unless, you know, if they have family in town, you're probably not going to get on. They probably have family hunting. But if they're just out there and they're just an older couple, that is where I have found my most success in getting permission. Um, because like, wow, do those people cherish when somebody drops in and spends two hours talking to them. Like I have had those older ladies like make me cookies while I'm in the kitchen, like 
bullshitting with them. Um, and so again, it's all about how much time you want to spend and how much time you want to put into your hunt, uh, public land access, you can drive up and walk on there, but it, getting private land access is by no means impossible. It's just a lot more work. Yeah, that's great. That's uh, that's exactly what I was looking for on my answer there. Good. So <clears throat> what are the challenges you might have when you're like, say, say you go someplace, you either don't have the, the time before to look for access to private land or maybe you maybe you've knocked on a bunch of doors or you made a bunch of phone calls can't get access what are the challenges of you know then finding public land or if there are any challenges uh i mean there certainly can be challenges um but that that just comes back to really looking at a map before you make a plan uh and, and just ensuring that there is ample access within the realm you know again whatever you're willing to drive kind of that hour and a half realm is kind of my limit i'm not interested in driving further than an hour and a half if i'm already traveling out of state to hunt um and so i just make sure that there's ample ground within that you know 80 mile radius or whatever it is um and so long as there's a few different tracks of ground that i am confident that's going to hold whatever critter i'm after I, i typically am down to to go give it a whirl the biggest challenges that that you face on out-of-state hunts is weather like when you only got four days to hunt and if three of them are total dog shit you know raining sideways or storm you know whatever it may be like it's gonna be a tough hunt like no way around it um and there's not really a way to plan for that one that you're just gonna take some on the chin with tough weather if if you're gonna go on out-of-state hunts Um, the next toughest one is just like hunting pressure. Um, I've been on multiple hunts where, you know, I, I found an area that it, it had an adequate, what I felt was adequate amount of public land within that radius of mine. And, and you get there and it's just like every freaking spot you go, there's a truck or two trucks. And, um, man, for me, like solitude is almost more important than there actually being critters there. Um, like, I, I guess I'd rather have very few critters and no people than quite a few people and quite a few critters. Um, and, and so that can be very frustrating Uh, but at the same time, that's again, when, when really burning those maybe first or two days, first day or two scouting and getting the lay of the land, most people are, are fairly habitual and not overly eager to go keep bouncing to new places. You know, maybe they found a bird or a deer in there, you know, they saw, they had one encounter or they, they ran into one bird. They might just keep staying there and and keep hunting that one particular spot, which totally can be successful. Um, But for me, like I, I, again, I I like to notate where people are parked. I'll, you know, usually use a black waypoint on Onyx for anybody that is another hunter in the area. Um, And you start to get, you know, these dots across the map of where to avoid. Uh, And so I would say weather and hunting pressure are going to be your, your two biggest challenges. So long as you put yourself in a good spot with your initial plan that that gives you plenty of reasonably distance access 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Jared, we've asked you a bunch of questions and you've covered a ton of topics. Um, and you've even, you've brought up a lot of information that we hadn't even really considered. Um, that's been great for anybody that would plan an out of state hunt. Um, is there anything, you know, that we haven't asked or anything that's popped into your head that you think people should know about? I would say, I mean, the biggest thing is just go do it. Uh, I mean, like so many of my best memories are, you know, road tripping, uh, whether it be with buddies or cousins, my brother, my sister, um, you know, those, those are really all my best memories is like getting in a rig and, you know, dirt bagging it, going and seeing and doing, um, you know, whether we've totally gotten whooped and our teeth kicked in and didn't catch any steelhead or, you know, we went on a moose hunt and we killed two moose and a billy, uh, you know, like, and everything in between, like they're all learning experiences, get a camera, like actually, no, just use your iPhone, but just like actually take pictures. Yeah. Um, because I, I find so often that, you know, like you were talking about Keaton, like that memory pops up on your iPhone of a year ago. Um, and for me, like I, I love looking back on that stuff. Um, you know, even quote unquote unsuccessful trips that weren't a tag punched. I mean, like that doll sheep hunt I went on, even though it was DIY, you know, I had my, my sister and brother-in-law to guide me. I spent over five grand on that thing. And, and I mean, I, I did, I sure as hell didn't shoot a sheep and that was the best trip of my life. Hands down. Like it was just, um, you know, incredible country, uh, you know, awesome company seeing new places. Uh, and so I would say just center, center your trips around making those memories and, uh, the critters will come. Yeah. Great. So, but I appreciate you boys having me on. Hopefully, uh, yeah, this will spur some folks to, to start looking at some maps, planning a trip. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to go out here at the perfect time to start planning your spring turkey hunt. Uh, so start, start Googling around, figure out a state that you're interested in hunting and, uh, and go make it happen because there is no cheaper or better out of state hunt to do than spring turkeys. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, popping on here. Um, before we get you out of here, we always have that, that final ending questions for the podcast and, uh, we're mixing it up. We're getting a different kind of questions. Um, we're going to do a this or that with you and we don't need explanations. We just want to know what you're going to pick. All right. And then uh, we'll, we'll do an outro here and uh, send you on your way. We really appreciate it. Sweet. Let's do it. All right. So would you rather hunt the Northwest or the Southeast? Northwest. Mule deer, white tails or black tails? White tails. Would you rather hunt uh, a bear or a lion? Ooh. That's that's a really tough one. Uh, probably a lion. Turkeys or ducks? Turkeys. Archery or uh, firearms? Archery. Firearm or muzzleloader? Ooh. Honestly, fi- firearm. Mostly due to incompetence with a muzzleloader. All right. Are you throwing uh, a Twinkie in your backpack or a ding dong? 
probably a ding dong, but I'm not even positive I know what a ding dong is. <laughs> it's like the chocolate cupcakes with the Okay. Yeah, yeah. for sure ding dong then. Yeah, yeah. All right, blue Gatorade or red Gatorade? Oh, blue. Red, you didn't even make that a question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are you are you grinding your your game meat? Or are you put it into roasts or are you putting into steaks? Oh, I, steaks as many as possible. Fly fishing or gear fishing? Fly fishing. Elk or moose? As far as hunting or taste wise, both. Uh, I'll hunt elk. I'll eat moose. All right. All right. Warm climate or cold climate? Cold. Nice. All and, right. Well, uh, what's your what would be your favorite animal to hunt or favorite bird or animal to hunt out of state? Um, pure enjoyment as far as just like fun of the hunt turkeys uh quick explanation would be just like if you blow it uh not like it's not the end of the world it's not like a mature whitetail or mature moose where you've spent hours working for that one opportunity typically so like pure fun pure enjoyment camaraderie turkey hunting uh as far as like just chasing down a critter something about mature whitetails are are just deeply in my blood and i i need them cool that's awesome well, cool. Uh, I'm going to do a little outro here and uh, we'll send you on your way. So, Sweet, boys. All right. <clears throat> well, that was a, a another episode with Jared Larson from Onyx. We really appreciate him hopping on and talking about um, how to get started in out-of-state hunting or if you've done it before, maybe there's some tips there that uh, will make your experience better. Um, we really learned a lot and we just want to, like, I, I can't tell you enough. Thanks for hopping on and just being a part of us and a part of the, us growing. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, some things coming up. I wanted to put out a couple of events. We're doing a, uh, fly tying event, uh, down here in Washington. Uh, you can find that on our Instagram. You hit the link, it'll pop up. You'll also find a Turkey talk that we're putting on at the end of the month. So make sure you sign up for that. Uh, Russ from uh, NWTF is going to talk all about turkey. I've sat through one of his seminars. They're great. Um, they get you prepared and honestly pretty hyped up to go get after some turkeys come spring. So really excited about that. Um, we'll be putting on some more uh, tying events next month as well. And I'm still trying to put in place for February seminar. So stay tuned for that. Um, if you haven't and you're willing to go on, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, we would love to hear how we're doing. If you'd love to give us a good review, we'd love that. If we could do better, let us know. We'd love to improve there too. So, um, show some love to all of our partners here Alaska Rodco, Lucky Bug, Heather's Choice, Northern Knits, uh, NWTF, and uh, Kyle, what else? Uh, Shell Art, Shell Art. Sorry, Shelly. All love. I didn't mean to. It's been a long day. Um, but show some love there if you can. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, successful day, successful talk. And we just really appreciate you, Jared. Yeah, Keaton, Kyle, I appreciate you guys having me on. And uh, yeah, if any of you out there actually get to plan in a spring turkey hunt, uh, my Instagram is Jared C. Larson. If you're uh, stuck or having questions or trying to figure out where to go, feel free to Drop me a DM if I have any worthwhile info. I'll be uh, happy to point you in the right direction. Yeah. 
absolutely. And uh, yeah, just so thankful. And Kyle, anything you wanted to add there? Uh, no, I think you covered it good. It's been another good episode and super stoked to have on our first return guest. Yeah. So that being, that being said, thanks for listening to another episode of the Young Guides podcast. We'll catch you on the next one.